Law is more than the policeman on the corner. More than the courthouse where our laws are enforced. More than the jail where lawbreakers are punished. In your whole community, there are customs and moral codes which guide your actions. What social controls affect you? We're here in the camps. After years of urinating, I come to the conclusion that I'm an expert at urine. Thank you. You know, you're uncomfortable, you're in pain, you, you can't really um, access your documents if you have them. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. In 1963, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that states must provide an attorney for people who can't afford one. The case Gideon v. Wainwright changed how criminal courts work. The right to an attorney became enshrined in our national consciousness alongside life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's a nice idea, but in fact, there are many ways people end up confronting the legal system all alone. In this first of a series on what happens in the absence of lawyers, Life of the Law's reporter Elisa Roth takes us to a prison disciplinary hearing where not only are you not guaranteed an attorney, you aren't allowed to have one. On the afternoon of June 30th, 2003, Derek Hamilton was escorted downstairs to face his fate. To face disciplinary hearing officer Jim Kennedy. Derek Hamilton, Mr. Here's how Hamilton remembers uh, Kennedy. Um, he was a kind of stocky uh, guy with uh, salt and pepper hair, a round face, kind of tall. No mustache that I recall. There's no defendant's table and no judge's bench because it's not a courtroom. Uh, it's a hearing office where there's a cage and you sit inside the cage, you sit outside the cage at a desk. Foot shackles if you're on a foot shackle in order. If not, you're just in waist chains. In that particular facility, I probably was just handcuffed behind my back at that instance. Visiting regulation 118.22. Welcome to the alternate universe of prison discipline. surface, it has a lot of the trappings of a regular criminal court proceeding. It's hard to understand on the hissy cassette recording, but he's telling Hamilton his rights. To know what he's charged with, to show evidence and call witnesses to defend himself. But there's no judge and no jury, just the hearing officer who's often a high-ranking corrections officer. And there's one other thing. There are no lawyers allowed. The stakes are extremely high because getting disciplined can mean both spending more time in prison than you would have otherwise, and it can mean a much harder time convincing the parole board to let you out. There are tens of thousands of these hearings each year in New York State alone. But 
Because few are appealed and record keeping is complicated, it's impossible to know how many months or even years disciplinary hearings and the subsequent punishments end up adding to prison terms. The process starts when a corrections officer accuses you of breaking a rule. It could be an actual criminal offense, like murdering somebody. But more often, it's something much smaller, like getting in a fight or possessing contraband. Or in this case, for urinating. Hamilton was in solitary confinement for another violation. His wife was visiting, and when you get visitors in solitary, the officers bring you to a cage. Your visitor sits outside the cage. You sit inside, much like the way you sit during a hearing. And you can't leave the cage without an officer or two to accompany you. At this particular point in time, I was definitely uh, seeing a urologist for a prostate problem that I had, and I was getting medication that was causing me to urinate uh, frequently. So I asked to go to the bathroom, and I waited uh, about an hour, and nobody came. And I was either going to you know, urinate on myself or use a soda can, and I chose to use a soda can. Actually, several. An officer was watching on the surveillance monitor and says he saw Hamilton put his hands in his pants. The officer ended the visit and wrote him two tickets, one for the unhygienic act of relieving himself in a soda can, the other for refusing a drug test afterwards. Hamilton said he would provide the urine for the test, just not in the way the officer wanted him to. The impact of these hearings is long-term and very serious. Karen Murtaugh is the director of Prisoners Legal Services of New York, a nonprofit that provides legal help to prisoners in the state. It's not just for the year or the two or the three years that you're put in solitary, that you don't have packages, you can't call home, but you any of that, no commissary. When you... Uh, and you lose good time, which is, depending on your sentence, um, requires that you spend longer in prison. And it gets worse. The other piece of that is this goes on a permanent record. So when you go before the parole board to be considered for parole, they look at this decision and they most often deny you parole based upon your disciplinary record. Which would be a lot to deal with even if you had a lawyer. Not having a lawyer, you're your own advocate. You do the best you possibly can do, but you're going to run into some bias. You're going to run into some prejudices because you're presumed guilty. There's no presumption of innocence in prison disciplinary hearing. You're presumed guilty there. At least that's how it looks from the prisoner's side. As you might imagine, the view is a little different from the correction side. My name is Tad A. Levac. I'm a lieutenant with New York State Corrections. I've been a lieutenant since 2008. So I'm somewhere between uh, 500 to 1,000 hearings. Levac says the hearings are designed to make sure prisons stay orderly and safe for inmates, corrections officers, and civilians, but in such a way that the system treats inmates fairly. And it's important that I keep, a, uh, keep an open mind, um, that I'm fair to both staff and inmate, because if you're not, then to me the system, it's, the system will implode. The, the position is supposed to be fair and balanced. Levac says the fact that prisoners have recourse in the form of appeals to the state corrections department or to the state court means the hearings are fair. Plus, the hearing officer can't have any knowledge of or any connection to the alleged incident. But Hamilton, that's the former prisoner, and many others say officers almost always stick up for each other. There's also an inherent power dynamic between them, and there may be an education gap. And regardless of all that, the burden of proof for the prison 
is very, very low. I listened to the entire tape, which goes on for something like an hour and a half over the course of a couple of days. A lot of it is really boring, like listening to a filibuster when a senator starts reading the telephone book. Parts of it feel uncomfortably voyeuristic, especially where Hamilton is describing his various medical problems. I listened to some of it with Hamilton, sitting in his office in New York. He seemed unfazed to relive this incident from a dozen years ago when he sat in a cage dressed in prison greens waiting to find out what would happen to him. Absolutely. And, you know, you're uncomfortable. You're in pain. You, you can't really um, access your documents if you have them. You have to ask the hearing officer to do it for you. I mean, it's very uh, degrading. Very degrading. And sometimes you get a glimpse of the corrections officer's attitudes. Like here, when Hamilton asked the officer who filed the report how he knew what was in the cans. I dumped the cans out and there was urine in the cans. After years of urinating, I come to the conclusion that I'm an expert on urine. Thank you. So you used your own kind of experience, correct? I would sense him. There was urine in the cans. Hamilton spends a lot of the hearing objecting, not just to how the officer knew what was in the cans, but about employee assistants who didn't get him the documents he requested, about doctors who couldn't be reached to testify, and on and on. He did a lot of jailhouse lawyering during his time in prison, and this wasn't his first time in a hearing either. Karen Murtaugh, the prisoner's rights lawyer, says the only way to appeal the decisions, either to the state corrections department or to the state court, is to have those objections on the record which is something many inmates don't know to do. And the way that's been interpreted by the courts is that if a corrections officer writes a report and says, you did this, you um, disobeyed a direct order, that is substantial evidence. That's it. He doesn't even have to come testify. If a lawyer was in the room, they would call the officer, they would ask for logbooks. They might call other witnesses that were on the tier. And our clients don't necessarily know how to do that. The hearings are closed to the public, and lots of inmates don't bother to fight them for a whole lot of reasons. But Murtaugh says a quick look at the numbers suggests they're unfairly skewed against the inmates. In 2014, inmates appealed just 15 percent of all disciplinary hearing results, and less than a quarter of those appeals succeeded. Murtaugh says her office can take on only a small number of the appeals prisoners send them. In 2013 and 2014, she and her colleagues reviewed just under 500 cases. They won two-thirds of those they appealed. California couldn't provide me the numbers on disciplinary hearings and appeals, but a 2010 investigation by the Sacramento Bee found that the process skewed heavily in favor of prison officials there, too. Quote, not only are nearly all prisoners charged with rule violations ultimately found guilty— they usually lose their appeals, unquote. So is it really that simple? Margot Schlanger teaches prison law at the University of Michigan. You know, they say about attorneys that um, a lawyer who represents himself has a fool for a client. And that's if you're already a lawyer, right? So I think it's always the case that um, you're better off with somebody else representing you in any contentious hearing type situation. But she points out there are all kinds of situations, whether a disciplinary hearing at a university or in child custody cases, where people don't have a right to an attorney. Bringing in attorneys would be complicated logistically because of the security aspect, but it would also change the tenor of the hearings. And then there's the cost. Most prisoners can't afford an attorney anyway, 
So would the state pay for one? Or would only prisoners who can pay get them? I think there's no question that it is stacked against the prisoner. The question is how heavily. And I think that's a very hard one to answer. After several days, the hearing officer dropped one of the charges against Hamilton, since the rule was against urinating on the floor or throwing urine, and nobody had even accused him of that. But he was convicted of the other one, refusing to take the drug test. Sanctions have imposed 12 months in the special housing unit starting on April 16, 2004, and ending on April 16, 2005. A year in solitary confinement, a year without packages, a year without commissary, a year without phone privileges. Hamilton says he got a rehearing on appeal and eventually got the charges overturned. By that point, though, he had already served most of the time. Derek Hamilton spent 20 years in New York State Prison, about half of that in solitary confinement. He was released in 2011, and in January 2015, he was exonerated. He now lives in New Jersey with his wife and daughter. He works in a law office in New York, helping other people who have been wrongfully convicted in the state. For Life of the Law, I'm Lisa Roth. And I'm Nancy Mullane. The U.S. Supreme Court had a huge summer with verdicts legalizing same-sex marriage and upholding the Affordable Care Act. But in a much less publicized decision, the court debated the idea of disparate impact. Disparate impact sounds wonky, but it's basically the concept that a state or federal policy can still be discriminatory, even if government agencies and officials say they didn't mean it to be discriminatory. Baltimore-based reporter Lawrence Lanahan brings us this story. The civil rights gains of the 1960s outlawed discrimination by race, discrimination that often had government approval or even participation. Yet, in 2015, housing in cities like Baltimore is still segregated, and opportunities in poor black neighborhoods remain severely limited. Columbia University law professor Alati Johnson says governments still contribute to racial inequality, just in a more innocuous way. Take, for example, New Orleans, after Hurricane Katrina. A lot of the people who were displaced were African Americans who had lived in New Orleans, and people were looking for replacement housing. After Katrina, some parishes outside New Orleans adopted new zoning ordinances, like bans on multifamily housing. So you couldn't build apartment buildings. The ordinances didn't tell any particular group of people, you can't live here. But they have an effect of limiting housing um, to the people who already lived in these predominantly white parishes and of excluding African Americans. Local officials often say these policies have nothing to do with race. They might justify them on Arguments such as congestion or to preserve a certain kind of neighborhood character. And sometimes, I mean, those may be the reasons. It's the big question when it comes to 21st century racial inequality. Is there a way to hold decision makers accountable when their policies have the effect of harming racial minorities, even if you can't prove discriminatory intent? 
In other words, if a government official says, but I didn't mean to, what can you do besides walk away muttering, yeah, but you did? The law had never been perfectly clear on that question, until, that is, a Supreme Court decision last month. A nonprofit in Texas argued that the state's housing agency was rejecting too many tax credits for low-income housing in Dallas's white suburbs and instead crowding low-income developments into black and Latino neighborhoods. The case wasn't about whether Texas meant to discriminate. The plaintiffs just said the agency's way of doing things had an unjustified effect on blacks and Latinos. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 outlawed discrimination by race in the sale and rental of housing. But could you use it in court based only on the effect that seemingly neutral policies had on African Americans? Appeals courts had said yes, but the language was a little vague. Texas said the Fair Housing Act only covered discriminatory intent. The Supreme Court disagreed with Texas. In June, they ruled that effects are covered under certain conditions. One, prove the disparity and show how the policy caused it. Two, give the defendant a chance to justify the policy. The third step of the analysis is that the plaintiff can still prevail by showing that there is an alternative mechanism to further the same goals, but that doesn't have the discriminatory impact. For instance, if some local zoning board claims that new apartment buildings will cause traffic congestion, a plaintiff can suggest new traffic policies or fewer units per building. Alati Johnson says that left on its own, the federal government will never provide full enforcement. What's key, she says, is that citizens pay attention. A lot of the ways in which uh, we've gotten progress on race, gender, other kinds of inclusion issues is by having um, lawyers, uh, people on the ground, um, people in states and localities who actually say, I want this to be done in a different way. So what about housing? Will it be done in a different way now? In his majority opinion, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote that the Fair Housing Act of 1968 has, quote, a role in moving the nation toward a more integrated society. Pessimists may point out that this legal approach has been available for decades with little to show, and that all the Supreme Court did was not take it away. But for others, the Supreme Court decision could signal a changing tide and embolden people on the ground fighting for more inclusive housing policies. The question of further integration remains, but the path forward just may be a little clearer. For Life of the Law, I'm Lawrence Lanahan. And I'm Nancy Mullane. This piece was reported by Lawrence Lanahan and edited by Kirsten Jesuits heidel Our episode on disciplinary hearings was reported by Elisa Roth and edited by Ben Adair. Ashley Cleek is our managing editor, Caitlin Prest, Life of the Law's senior producer, designed the sound and produced the story with assistance from Jonathan Hirsch. Howard Gelman of KQED is our engineer. This episode was produced and reported with the support from the Fund for Investigative Journalism, the Proteus Fund, the Law and Society Association, and the Open Society Foundations. Life of the Law is a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Infinite Guest Network of podcasts from American Public Media. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We adore you, our listeners, and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to make a donation to help cover the direct costs of producing our stories, you can find a donate button at the top of our website, www.lifeofthelaw.org. It just takes a minute. Next week on our sister podcast, Live Law. 
I remember thinking uh, what New Orleans claims it is, uh, all sorts of people working together, getting along. The skate park really was. That's next week on Live Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. (laughs) Uh, Think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American married to a Colombian Mexican American and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. (laughs) Uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. (laughs) Don't worry about it. We're we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. (laughs) Oh, my God. Vamos, let's do this. 